For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, listen to the first story recorded in Tucson during StoryCorps' current visit. Hear about one woman's year eating only fresh, whole foods when Megan Kimball discusses her book, Unprocessed. And meet Stephen Buckman, the author of a new look at natural history called The Reason for Flowers. Those stories are coming up on Arizona Spotlight. The motto of the nonprofit group StoryCorps is simple but profound. Listening is an act of love. Since 2003, thousands of people from around the world have had the opportunity to record their stories in the form of a conversation with someone they love. A team from StoryCorps is in Tucson now, and next we'll hear the first story they recorded after their arrival between Gulshan and Neelam Sati. My parents, Madhu and Raj, were married in India in 1948. The British had just left India. India had just got its independence in August of 1947, and they were married May 1948, and I was born December 49. Just after marriage. Yeah. Well, in India, they waited nine months. They wanted to see. And um, I had a magical, lovely childhood. I remember things so clearly. The most important thing that I felt growing up was the incredible love that my parents gave. And I think that was the strongest thing in the world is the power of love. And especially for children, it molded me in such a beautiful way. And I shall forever be grateful to my parents for bringing me up that way. And then I still remember so clearly when I met you, Gulshan, for the first time. And And that was on? uh, That was December the 7th, Uh 1970. I had just turned 21 on the 5th. Long and, time ago. Yeah, and you came on the seventh to Lucknow. Yeah. So, what do you remember about that? Oh, very well about that. But you know, Nila, my life is so different than yours. You know, you grew up as a princess and uh, uh, had a great childhood. Uh, mine was very, very different. Uh, uh, I was born uh, on December twenty third, nineteen forty one, in Jammu, uh, Kashmir, and uh, unfortunately, my mother died. Uh, uh, three years after I was born, mm. so I was never I never knew her. Mm. I my brother tells me that uh, she was in uh, Mare, which is in Pakistan now. It appears that she might have tuberculosis, and they were concerned about uh, infection to the children. Mm. So she will see us through the curtains, but I don't remember her at all. And I grew up in uh, in Jammu for a few years, and then because of partition, I was uh, sent to Kanpur because Jammu was very unstable. There was a lot of uh, killing going on. Uh, so my father sent us to, to Kanpur to be brought up by my 
Bhua, which is my uh, father's sister. So in Kanpur, we grew up uh, uh, without mother, but a lot of love from, from the family, extended family. I went to education in Kanpur, then went to Lucknow University, where you used to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then I went to medical school in New Delhi, the All India Institute of Medical Sciences. Finished the training there. That was one of the best. Still uh, is one yeah. of the best in India. It is still the best in actually the whole Asia. Mm. And then I came to United States in 1964. When I left India, a lot of people came to see me off, and they brought a lot of garlands, and <laughs> like I was a big dignity. dignity. <laughs> it was fun, and it was difficult to leave home and be alone in uh, Connecticut. I was, did my internship at, in, at Yale, New Haven. And did my training uh, in various places, including Chicago. Then I was in Kansas City, and I did my cardiac surgery from Salt Lake City. And it was in Salt Lake City mm -hmm. when um, my sister-in-law, who you know very well, Komal, right. uh, she used to write to me that, you know, now you need to get married. And I might have a right <laughs> girl for you. <laughs> and I said, you know, really? And I recall five-page letter. <laughs> with a with a with a picture, and I thought that picture, yeah. and I said, I want that girl. <laughs> In those days, um, we were not um, allowed to date or go out or write letters to boys at all, and so the families would um, look at some girls or boys who they thought would be good matches yeah, huh? for their children, and when the parents approved of each other, then they would. Uh, contact the son and the daughter and say, why don't you meet? And usually you met over tea. I recall very well, I went to uh, my uh, chairman, Dr. Russell Nelson, who is a, one of the big person in Mormon church now. And I asked, actually I told him, I said, Dr. Nelson, I need six weeks off. And he said, six weeks, you can't take it off. You have to repeat the whole year. And then he asked me, why do you want to take a six weeks off? And I said, I want to go to India and get married to this girl. <laughs> and he said, do you know her? I said, no, I know her. I think she's a great girl. My sister-in-law says she's wonderful. Mm. So I went to Delhi, and, uh, and I recall very well uh, going to your house, your father and uh, your brother and your sister and Saran. Mm. And we sat in the living room. And all of a sudden, this curtain opens, and there is this beautiful girl comes out in a beautiful sari, and I have one look at her, and I say, my God, if this is true, if this thing becomes a reality, I'll be the happiest man in the world. And I'm so happy after 45 years. Yeah. I Even felt the same way, too. I don't think so. I did. <laughs> I just felt your presence and your uh, strength. And I felt that it would be perfect. Yeah. So. so I wasn't sure that uh, you would approve of me <laughs> at that time. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, she was uh, still beautiful. A lot of boys wanted to get married to her. She was very popular. And, you know, I was kind of a not that charming guy. No, you were. <laughs> you were. So I kept on praying and praying. And I said, hope this girl accepts me. Yeah. Yes. So, that was a magical time. Life is a mirror. How you project, that's the reflection you get back. Yeah. And our children are a reflection of us. 
We are very grateful for that. Yeah, they are wonderful right. children, wonderful grandchildren. We have been blessed to have the life we have. The life we have. Everything that I have thought about or dreamed about has always happened. I love you. I love you for always supporting me. And you are my role model. So we make a great team. We have the <laughs> the great team and uh, 45 years and. Uh, Going Many more to go. Yeah. I love you. I love you too. We heard Neelam and Gulshan Sati recorded in the StoryCorps booth at the Reed Park Zoo in Tucson. It will be there until December 19th. Information on making reservations is at azpm.org. Megan Kimball is the managing editor of Edible Baja Arizona. In 2012, when she was 26 and a recent transplant to Tucson, Kimball spent a year determined to eat more wholesomely, without favorites like ice cream, pizza, or processed foods. It was a diet, but not with the goal of slimming down. She writes about that year in her book Unprocessed: My City-Dwelling Year of Reclaiming Real Food. Here's Mariana Dale's interview with Megan Kimball about the experience. So to start out, how did you define unprocessed? That was a really hard question and I spent a lot of my year and the book trying to answer that what makes food processed because of course all food is processed cooking is a kind of process you know so is preserving and for the most part processing has been really good for human nutrition and for food you know think about making grains into bread that was a really good thing for us So for the purposes of my year, a food was unprocessed if I could theoretically make it in my home kitchen. I came up with that definition sort of as a way to imagine how food is made. I could imagine how a wheat berry from a field could grind up and become whole grain flour. In fact, I got a little hand crank grain grinder and made my own flour, but I couldn't take that a step further and make refined white flour because I needed, you know, industrial machines and chemicals. And so that was one of the first foods you attempted to make was your own bread and since grain is kind of one of the foundational foods of modern humans tell me about what that experience was like It definitely was a learning curve bread is I think really easy to make decent bread and really hard to make really good bread I bought wheat berries whole wheat berries Arizona grows lots of great wheat heritage varieties of wheat and I ground those wheat berries up into whole grain flour I got this little hand crank grain mill and so and then I used that flour added yeast and water and honey and made bread And you kind of I mean overindulge the first time you made it <laughs> Yeah bread is definitely one of those foods that for me I have a hard time eating moderate amounts of and that was the first sort of time that I learned too that the wonderful thing about eating unprocessed foods is that they're really filling and they're really satisfying but I had been accustomed to eating sort of low carb bread and diet foods and those don't fill you up in the same way and so bread was what really taught me unprocessed food fills you up differently and so you have to eat less of it You milled flour, you made cheese and mead, but unprocessed wasn't really about disconnecting yourself from the rest of the world. You did continue to go out to eat, and so how did you apply your rules to the real world? Right, exactly. Going out to eat was really hard because the real world is full of processed food. It was really important to me to be able to still go out and maintain connections with my friends and family and so much of our social lives happens over food. So my rule for that was sort of try your best. I the first time I went out to eat, I remember I asked the server like 
12 questions, you know, what is in your salad dressing? How is your bread made? What's in your tortillas? And that becomes sort of prohibitive. You can't go out and ask that many questions. And so really, I tried to go to places that I thought were making food without a lot of additives, which conveniently is often local restaurants. You know, local artisans who make food tend to not add crazy stuff because their food is being consumed right there in their community. This wasn't really the first time in your life that you had carefully monitored and measured what you ate. You talk about dieting and doing Weight Watchers. And so how did this year change the way that you felt about food? So I had done Weight Watchers before. I had, you know, like so many women had struggled with my weight since I was 16, you know, and had tried different diets in terms of how to stay full and slim and all the things that we want to be. I think doing diets like Weight Watchers, while really effective for some people, changes how you view food and you start seeing food as sort of sums of its component parts. So, you know, fat, fiber, calories, and really eating unprocessed sort of forced me to see food as nourishment, as what's going to satisfy me and keep me full. Because the way that diet foods are made is that the stuff in them, fats or carbohydrates, is processed out and replaced with chemicals. So if you decide that you're not going to eat any chemicals, you just can't eat those diet foods. And it was a sort of revelation to realize that I could eat whole foods, you know, full fat cheese and grains and all, like I could eat anything I wanted within the constraints of unprocessed and not gain weight because those foods are satisfying. You were making less than $20,000 a year when you wrote the book, and at the end, you totaled up. And how much did eating unprocessed end up costing you? I kept every grocery receipt for every purchase I spent, and I tallied it up at the end of the year and found out that eating unprocessed, which means mostly organic, largely local, cost me about $4.50 a meal, which to me, was less than I thought it was going to be. I thought that that was a really reasonable amount to be spending on food, particularly because it's really an investment in health. At the time, that was about a quarter of your income, which is a lot for a lot of people. Eaters in the U.S. spend a smaller fraction of their disposable income on food than any other country in the world. So we spend about, I think it's about 6 or 7% of our income on food. A quarter of your income on food is a huge proportion, but it's actually on par with what most other countries spend. It's been a couple of years since your year unprocessed. I imagine you've had quite a few Sonoran hot dogs and (laughs) maybe a frozen pizza in between that time. But how did that one year change your eating habits today? My year unprocessed profoundly changed how I eat. I still eat about 90% unprocessed. I love to cook, so it's just as easy to continue cooking unprocessed. So much of the work was up front of figuring out what I wanted to eat and what was unprocessed. And so now that I have that figured out, You know, I love the way that it makes me feel. The food is better. It tastes better. You know, why would I return to low-fat cheese? (laughs) That doesn't taste good. You have a lot of takeaways in your book. And what's one thing people can do to kind of unprocess their own lives? I have a couple of ideas of how people can unprocess their own lives. The first thing I would say is to read the ingredient label on every food that you're buying and eating. It's sort of amazing once you flip it over and look at its underbelly, the kinds of things that are in foods. I think it will be surprising. It was certainly surprising to me. And then the other thing, which is sort of the conclusion of the book, is to think about how you're spending your money on food. Voting with your dollars is a sort of cliche, but I think it's true that consumer spending shapes our food system. And so if consumers invest more of their money in local foods, foods that are produced sustainably and mindfully without lots of crazy additives, there will be more of those foods. If we continue to buy foods made by large corporations, those corporations will continue to make money and make foods that aren't good for us. Megan Kimball's book is Unprocessed, My City-Dwelling Year of Reclaiming Real Food. 
There are pictures on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. From weddings to funerals, get well soon wishes to romantic gestures, and from art and poetry to fabric design and fragrances, flowers play a role in our daily lives that is far beyond their humble ecological purpose. Stephen Buckman is an adjunct professor of entomology at the University of Arizona. He's also an expert on pollination and bees, and he's authored more than a half dozen books on the connection between flora and fauna. Buckman just completed a collection of natural history essays called The Reason for Flowers, and I asked him to join me to talk about the book. What is the first thing that someone does when you give them a flower, or better yet, a whole bouquet? They grab them, they bring them up to their face, they inhale deeply, and they flash a big toothy smile, uh, something psychologists call a Duchesne smile, right? A true smile, not one of those fakey TV smiles. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I like to think that without flowers, we as a species, humans, wouldn't exist. If you go back far enough, you go back two, three, four, or five million years ago, our hominid ancestors were out hunting food, and it wasn't all big, fierce animals. They were going after fruits and berries. And I don't talk about it a lot in the book, but I like to think that as uh, the earliest farmers and before that, the earliest hunter-gatherers were, let's face it, women. And they were probably attuned to flowers because they were the harbingers of tasty fruits and nutritious seeds that came later. I also like to say that uh, flowers don't get around much unless they're a prom corsage. So in a way, learning to read the flowers may have been one of the first forms of literacy. I think so. Part of this nature craft or nature wisdom that we see in um, indigenous peoples all over the world that have to live by their wits in the forest or desert and not finding their stuff shrink-wrapped at Safeway. <laughs> well, leaping ahead many thousands of years, if not millions, <laughs> to the Victorian era, yes. w you make a point about some of the many ways that the Victorian culture influenced us to this day involving flowers. What do you think may have been some of the reasons why Victorian culture was so interested in making flowers a part of everything? Then, as today, um, Britain is really a nation of gardeners. And, and somehow, during the great plant ex exploration quests around the world, uh, all kinds of things were coming to England, especially to Kew Gardens. And they were being tested by horticulturalists. And I talk about some of the plant collectors and distributors in the book. But things, for example, like the giant Amazon water lily, uh, Victoria Amazonica. I mean, here was this thing that had lily pads five or six feet across that could support the weight of a child and had these beautiful white blooms. And so all of a sudden you had immense glass houses at Kew and other places. I mean, there were wealthy middle and upper class individuals in Britain who were building these insanely uh, grandiose hothouses and filling them up with rare orchids and, and other plants. So it was a sign of the times that they were, they were just bringing in all this stuff and trying to grow it. And those plants were major spectacles. They attracted crowds, lines, queues, as they would say in England, queues outside queue yes. to, to line up to see them. Um, that's something that is hard to imagine today outside of a select group botany enthusiasts or horticulturists. Mm -hmm. every, every once in a while you'll see something about uh, 
giant voodoo lily or corpse flowers at the Miami Botanical Garden or L.A. Arboretum or something. So, uh, for example, the two contenders for the world's largest flower are either the giant carrion flower of Borneo, <laughs> Rafflesia, uh, or the corpse flower or voodoo lily from Indonesia. And not quite true to say it's a single flower, but it's a collection of flowers. But still, this is a display that over a period of a few weeks uh, turns into this immense spathe and spadix that's about six feet tall. So, you know, that's a big flower. There's a quote that I'll always remember from the biography of the actor Charles Lawton. He was married to Elsa Lanchester. Uh, they were both actors from England. And they, when they moved to California, they inherited a garden. And they had a night-blooming cirrus. And in the book, the quote is, A night-blooming cirrus party is the most wonderful type of affair where any sort of person can meet and mix well with others. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I, I, that quote has always stayed with me since I read that. Yeah, I love that. I, I wasn't aware of that. I, I'm a big Queen of the Night fan myself, and I attend all of the uh, Tohono Chul Bloom Nights and uh, actually studied the chemicals that make up the Datura and Queen of the Night blend with, with Rob Raguso at Cornell. So we know a little bit about what chemicals are attracting the moths. But it's an incredible spectacle because Datura and Queen of the Night um, – and other night-blooming serious cacti bloom really rapidly. So they literally go from a, a bud to a fat bud to a flower right before your eyes. Um, one of my favorite things to do is to set up a camera taking photos about every 30 seconds for four or five hours and making time-lapse images of these as they unfurl because they're, they're just amazing. When you look out at an area of the desert here close to home and you see the flowers, you see that abundant flora, what kind of things go through your mind that might be different? Is the history of those flowers there for you to read in a way? It is. Um, as a pollination ecologist and bee biologist, I look at these floras. And for, for example, I, I tend to work in deserts and tropical rainforests. Those are really my two favorites. But in the Sonoran Desert of Arizona, northern Mexico, the floral landscape is writ in yellows, basically. You have kind of a yellow-dominated flora. So you think of our Palo Verdes and lots of other flowers. And there are a few white ones, red ones, and blue ones, but predominantly we've got yellow flowers. And these are indicative of perhaps the richest bee real estate on the planet. And we don't really know how many native ground and twig-nesting bees we have in the Sonoran Desert. I, I would, might guess seven or eight hundred. Uh, in Arizona, we have thirteen hundred species, everything from the world's smallest bee, Perdita minima, millimeter and a half long, to the gentle giants, the big black carpenter bees that people complain about nesting in their patio. <laughs> that timbers. was the first thing I thought of. Yeah, yeah. the carpenter bees. Yeah. So we have an extremely rich uh, bee fauna. I don't think I was aware that carpenter bees were pollinators. They are. They visit lots of flowers. They'll go to sunflowers. You'll see them on a lot of different types of flowers. As someone with a stronger in interest in biology than botany, I still found a lot to get excited about in your book because perhaps because of your background, you're looking at these flowers from the outside in. Thanks. I, I, <laughs> I am trying to 
look at them from sort of the uh, bee's eye view or pollinator eye view so that my career has been spent trying to figure out why flowers are the color, shape, or smell that they are, what the chemistry of the types of pollen and nectar rewards they're producing, when those are produced, and then what pollinators um, come in. So I, I like to think that floral biology or pollination is the best of all possible worlds because you can bring biology, behavior, botany, zoology, chemistry, biophysics, all kinds of things to bear on the problem. And you, you really need to have a, I won't say a, a, a generalist perspective, but certainly a, a wide perspective to be able to keep your eyes and ears open because sometimes something uh, that you observe just just clicks and then, then it makes sense to how that pollination system works. I think another case that you make in this book is that plants, particularly you can apply this to the desert plants, local flora, they're really playing the long game. Uh, as they I are. mentioned, animals, day-to-day -day survival is so key, but to a plant, it's not really day-to-day -day that their systems are concerned with. That's right. And even, you know, for annuals, it can be pretty dicey, but certainly for long-lived perennials, I mean, saguaros and palaverdes, to be a little bit anthropomorphic, I mean, they, they don't really care if they lose their entire seed crop or most of it one year because, well, maybe next year or maybe 10 years from now, <laughs> they'll, they'll win the lottery. And winning the lottery can only mean, I mean, and can mean as little as replacement of one individual. So if you think of the Sagan-esque number of seeds that a saguaro is producing during its 150-year lifetime, you know, millions of seeds, well, only one of those has to replace the parent. In the end, is there a simple way to express the reason for flowers? Not one thing, but perhaps it's their beauty that has beguiled us and their pollinators. But let's, let's face it, their reason is to advertise. They're living billboards to advertise for sexual favors. But they also have inspired many cultures and generations of artists and, and poets. And as we touched on earlier, perhaps our hominid ancestors, perhaps we wouldn't be here if flowers had not evolved. That was Stephen Buckman discussing The Reason for Flowers, published by Scribner. Buckman will give a free public talk about the book Tuesday at 5 p.m. at the University of Arizona Bookstore. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.